You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of creating one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writer's Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu. Hi, my name is Lilium Rivera, and I am the author of The Education of Margot Sanchez. Lilium Rivera is an award-winning writer and author of The Education of Margot Sanchez, a contemporary young adult novel available now from Simon & Schuster. Her second young adult novel, Dealing in Dreams, is forthcoming in March 2019. Lilium lives in Los Angeles. Pretty in Pink comes to the South Bronx in The Education of Margot Sanchez, a bold and romantic coming-of-age novel about dysfunctional families, good and bad choices, and finding the courage to question everything you ever thought you wanted. After being caught borrowing her father's credit card, Margot Sanchez is stuck working off her debt at her family's struggling grocery store. With each order of deli meat she slices, Margot can feel her carefully cultivated prep school reputation slipping through her fingers, and she's willing to do anything to get out of this punishment. Lie, cheat, and maybe even steal. The Twilight movie came up, and I saw that it was once again no Latinos up in that vampire world. And I refused to live that life. So I insisted that I was going to write a draft of a vampire book that was going to be set in Los Angeles. And I did, and I did it in 90 days um, through um, a local author. His name is Al Watt, and he does a 90-day 90-day novel uh, workshop that I was, part, you know, I started participating in. I was talking to Al Watt, and Al Watt is just a really generous kind of author and writer. And the way he proposed the 90-day novel, he just sort of walked you through the steps very delicately. So every day you had something to do. And the first, I would say the first month, you were really just kind of gathering all your thoughts and just writing it, like sort of journaling and just, you know, having the images of what this, these, author, these uh, protagonists want to go through. Boom. It wasn't good at all. But I did it, you know, and it was just like this moment of like, I know I could complete a novel if I just, you know, dedicate the time every day to write. And as soon as I wrote that book, um, and it wasn't going to go anywhere because it was just my experiment of, you know, accepting a challenge, I wrote another book. And this one was going to be a coming of age story. And I knew that I wanted to write a sort of Judy Bloom book, but it was going to be with a Latina protagonist. And it was going to be set in the South Bronx where I'm originally from. And I wrote it um, in 90 days. And that was in uh, 2011, 2012, when I wrote that first draft. And then many, 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 many drafts later, um, the book was ready to be seen. Writing a draft in 90 days, it sounds almost impossible, but it's not. I mean, you're pretty much using the first month just to sort of collect images and visions and scenes almost of what your protagonist is. So when I start off, I just, I had Margot meeting Moises. And Moises is like, you know, the love interest, but he's also like kind of the turning point in the heart of the story in a lot of ways. So what happens? What happens next? What do they say? What is she wearing? What is he wearing? Where are they? Are they in the South Bronx? What does that look like? And on and on. And I just keep asking those questions, like, what happens next? Where are they? Where are they? What does she want? What does she need? Um, Who else is coming in? So for the first month, I'm just collecting all these kind of images and not really writing prose per se, but just scenes. Um, And 
continuing to sort of fill my well with that. And then once that month is done, then I'm ready to, you know, write an outline, write an, a real, not super extensive. I, I write outlines, but I don't ever, I write them and then I don't look at them again. Because once I start writing those chapters, I just sort of allow myself to see where it goes. But I always have an idea of the beginning and the end. And this goes with everything I've written, short stories, flash fiction. I just have to know the beginning of it and the sense of what the end is, where they're going to be, how that feeling is, even if it's like emotional, I always know. And that's once I have that, I can can start, I feel. And then it goes sort of smoothly. So then you're just every day, you're just writing every day. And the goal is 2,000 words a day or uh two hours a day. Some days you're writing more, some days you're writing nothing, you know, writing a sentence and the next day you're going to erase it. But for the most part, you're not even editing yourself. You're just writing that draft to get it out. Um, but writing every day. I know that I'm dedicating myself to my art. I know that it's work. Like I'm going to punch in, I'm going to do the hours and then, then I could have lunch or I could, you know, go talk on Twitter like I usually do, you know, things like that. So, but, you know, two hours, dedicate yourself 15 minutes. Sometimes I'm, on a, I'm in a car, I'm waiting for someone, and I'll just jot something down. I'm like, okay, here's here we go. I have 15 minutes. I could do this. So all those kind of like all that time kind of adds up, and eventually you have an substantial amount of pages. You have a novel. It doesn't become like this huge mountain that you have to climb of like 250 pages. It becomes like little snippets of like this chapter, this chapter, and it ties up. I mean, that's the way I, I want to look at it that way. Because if not, then I, I, I'll be paralyzed. I won't move. <laughs> After having my 90-day draft, I, I celebrate, right? It's, that's a big deal. And then, um, then I put it aside. <laughs> I usually put it aside and I let it um, kind of grow a little bit. And I do other things and write other things and not look at it for at least a couple of weeks. Or if you have the luxury, um, years <laughs> of not looking at a draft. Um, for Education Margot Sanchez, it... I worked immediately after, and I started rewriting it. Um, the first draft was really different from what it ended up becoming. Um, the first draft, I think I was, I thought I was going to be way more ambitious. It was going to be told by two points of view, and um, <laughs> I was going to go back in time, and it was going to be like a curse because I had just read. Um, uh, the Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde by Juno Diaz. So I felt, oh, yes, I have to do something like that. And it was just really a lot of different um, ideas that I had that didn't make sense. So all of that was stripped out. And then I was just like, oh, no, you, all you need is her voice. And she's the one who's going to guide us. I just kept going back to my summers in the South Bronx. Summers in the South Bronx are, like, really magical to me. Um, everyone is outside. Uh, there's live music. Uh, there's it's there's heat, there's sweat, everyone's in your face, people are getting angry, there's also a lot of love, a lot of sex. I mean, it was just all in there for a summer. I felt like my teenage years in the summer, maybe I wasn't like that because I was way more sheltered, but I wanted to be a part of that world. And so I wanted to write about it for Margot, how she would spend that summer in the South Bronx and what how it would totally change her, sort of going right back to the heart of it and 
asking that question over and over again. What is it that Margot wants? What is it that she needs? And if you ask that of all the characters, you'll notice that they all sort of want the same thing. They're just going about it in a different way. And maybe Margot's the only one that sort of shifts her perception of, of that of that want and need at the end. It's funny because when you, you know, I'm asked to read the book when I go to events and I'm still editing the book while I'm reading it. Sometimes I'll have a pencil and, and if you see my book now, the one that I read, there's notes on it because I don't think it's ever finished, right? But when I was close for it to be like, okay, I'm going to go to an agent, I received a a fellowship through uh, Penn Center USA. It's the Emerging Voices Fellowship. And I applied to that fellowship knowing that I had a completed draft and I, I was just needed that one more step. And so they, they teamed me up with um, Cecil Castellucci, who's a young adult author. And, you know, she does picture books, graphic novels, young adult books. Um, she lives in Los Angeles. And she also grew up in um, in the Bronx. And so she she was became my mentor, still is my mentor. And she um <clears throat> excuse me, she she gave me notes for my whole draft and gave me all this great advice of what to do and how to approach this life of becoming uh, a writer in a way. Like I knew I was a writer back then, but I felt like she just opened the my eyes to what a literary citizen is and just being really giving to writers or other people who are trying to be a writer as well. And that was when I knew um, I would re rewrite it one more time, and I knew I was ready to send it off to agents. And that's what I did. I ended up rewriting it. It took another, maybe another year, and then I sent it off positive. Positive, you know, positive in the sense like you send it off, you wait. You send it off, you wait for notes. Do they, do they want the manuscript? Yes, no, they pass. But, um, but it worked out for me. I guess for me, like, it's important, like, someone had asked me the other day, how do you submit? Like, you query, you know, you send a query letter. But my, my first thing was I asked everybody. <laughs> like, I asked, do you know of an agent? Who's your agent? Because by then, I've already, I've spent a lot of, like, a couple of years, even living here in L.A., I just made sure that I was aware of what was going on in L.A. when it came to young adult authors. Like, I, I made friends with them. I would go to book signings. I would go to conferences. I'm going to be a young adult author. I'm going to be aware of what was happening in that industry. So um, so I asked a lot of friends, and some of them gave me names of their agents, and I submitted to them. But my book, you know, my agent picked out my query letter from a slush pile. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. I knew uh, who he represented, you know, because obviously I did my research, but um, he picked it my he picked the query and he he asked for the manuscript and and ended up becoming perfect but it also strangely after like quiet for so long of not getting any kind of play the moment um eddie schneider who's my agent asked to see my manuscript all of a sudden like two other agents wants to see the manuscript um because they had seen a short story i had published um and then it became like, oh, all of a sudden I'm wanted, right? It was great. Um, I don't know if that'll happen again, but <laughs> but it was awesome at that moment. Um, but you know, then you just go through it like you research everything. You know, I ask for recommendations. You know, can I talk to your clients? What do they say? And people, I asked clients for their recommendations. So the the funny thing about writing like uh, the education, Margot Sanchez, is that you know, obviously I wrote things about it, like, you know, I, I threw Spanish words in there, you know, I at the time I didn't italicize them, and um, I wrote about Puerto Rican culture, and I didn't explain it as much, even though, I, you know, I was aware of how to write 
those things without alienating readers. Um, but I didn't want to be like, oh, here's the tour of what it's life is like in the Bronx and if you're Puerto Rican. You know, I just didn't want that. I wanted you to get a glimpse of what her life is going to be like, you know. And um, with Eddie, um, Eddie Snyder, he he just kind of made me aware of that, of like he loved that. He couldn't get enough of like that culture. He wanted even more, you know. Um, he wanted me to like... And it was it was fun for me to be able to see that because um, there aren't that many um, books or young adult novels that are set in the South Bronx. I mean, I could count them in my hand how many there are. I mean, currently, like Adam Silvera, uh, Cole Booth, um, Rita Williams Garcia, if I'm correct. Yeah, like there are only a handful. Um, they're, they're currently still writing. Um, so I just felt like if I was going to try to capture that, I just wanted to make sure that I did it respectfully and honestly as well, without it being stereotypical. And Zareen um, Joffrey, who's my editor at Simon & Schuster, she just gets my gets where I'm coming from. And, and I knew that she was the person I wanted to edit the education. And it was great. So the process of getting your book edited. So um, they make an offer. Woo, you're happy. Woo. And then... Um, you wait for the the big announcements and on Publishers Weekly or whatever, and then it makes it seem like real because before that you're just like I don't know this could just go away, right? She could just rescind <laughs> the offer. Um, but so once that happens, then you wait for her notes and her notes. You know, I've heard people get like extensive notes. You know, their editorial letter is like pages and pages, and um, and surprisingly, her notes weren't you know that bad. They were. She gave me a letter, and the letter was pretty short, and then she gave me her notes throughout the manuscript. So my background was in journalism, and so I was used to kind of rewriting stuff. So I wasn't tied to any words on this in this manuscript at all. I had a deadline, and the deadline was maybe two months. You know, this is insane. But um, And I was working at the time. I was working um, a part-time job, but still. During that time, I would take my laptop with me, and during lunch, I would go to the park. I walk to the park, and I would uh, edit. And I would go to the libraries during the weekends. I would find a library that was open on Sundays, and I would edit. And my husband and my kids were like, "Where's mom?" <laughs> but I was, you know, it was because it was a deadline, and I'm really, when it comes to deadlines, I'm kind of strict. And so I rewrote it. And it's one thing to like produce a draft in 90 days because you're just free and you're just like, I'm just going to write this. But when you're revising, it's such a different, um, it's such a different brain, you're, you know, side of your brain that you're working on that it, it just takes me a long time. What, whenever someone points something out that's missing in your novel, that's your key to find another solution um, that makes sense for you. It's not your key to rewrite it in their voice or rewrite it in what they think should work. So it's always just suggestions, but it's always like that's your alarm to like, okay, something's not right. With, um, with Zareen, that's what she would do, and um, I would just have to take a step back and just how do I work it? How does this make sense? Is Does this ring true to Margot or Moises or anyone? And I have to free write that, and what does that look like, and produce new chapters and think of another track you know, or introduce a new character. And so that takes just takes a bit of time to just get to know them, <laughs> to know your character and if it makes sense in the novel and the world that you're producing. Um, I, I use Scrivener, if 
people know what Scrivener is. It's like a software platform, I guess, um, that you could just download. And it's great because it's just sort of everything is all in one spot. Like all my chapters are, you know, I have chapters and I'll have chapter one and chapter 1A and it goes all the way down. If you look at the education of Margot Sanchez, it goes like one chapter is like all the way down to H, <laughs> you know, maybe even more. So um, I just keep producing a new chapter, a new, uh, revising a new chapter and just creating another one. But also the great thing about Scrivener is that it just, I have images in there, I have music, I have research, um, everything is all in one spot. So I'm always using it. Um, it's a great, it's a great tool for me. I love Scrivener. Um, but after I'm working on Scrivener, I transport it all into a Word document. I get someone to print it out for me. <laughs> um, and then I start reading it aloud. And I'll read it at least three times. Um, I think recently I, I did this process with uh, my second novel and my voice was done because I had read a whole novel in one day and I wasn't stopping. I was just like, read. And, you know, I'm making notes as I'm reading along and striking words and um and going over it again and, you know, change, making all those changes. Um, but reading aloud is, I think, is super important. You just have to find the rhythm, you know, um, especially when you're with dialogue and young people. There's a rhythm to the way sentences should be flowing um, and stopping and start, you know, starting, especially with kids, you know, there's so many things that they they might not say a lot, but then they're in their thoughts and their heads, they're going on. <laughs> also, because I'm writing from the Bronx, I'm writing Puerto Rican, you know, I'm just New Rican, you know, speak. There's a rhythm to that as well. I think when I hit that point and it's like, am I making it worse? <laughs> That's when I got to stop and just uh, give it to the editor. Because I, sometimes you just get lost. <laughs> you are kind of blindly writing. You're like blindly editing. You're blindly writing in a way. Um, and then I just know that I'm hoping that the editor will guide me back. So, yeah, and then I send it off, and then you're just like, thank God, and you go get it, book a massage somewhere. <laughs> During that process of, like, before the book is published, I'm, like, I would say four months before that, I'm trying to figure out all these other details, like where I'm going to have my book launch. I'm going to, obviously I'm going to have it in the Bronx. Um, at that time, there were there's no bookstore in the Bronx, but I needed I wanted it to have it in the Bronx. It was really important to me, so I had to find a place um, that will do that and a bookseller. Um, all of that took a really long time. Um, I'm stressing out about that. I wanted to have a book launch here in L.A., obviously, but I wanted it to be in East L.A. So, you know, I don't make anything easy for myself. I'm just, like, very specific <laughs> or particular in what I want uh, because I felt like, you know, with the Education of Margot Sanchez, I just wanted it to make sure that it gets to kids that need it. Um, so with the Bronx, we partnered up with uh, Dream Yard, which is an organization that does this really great, um, like, after-school work, you know, like, teaching kids about fashion. You know, if they want to do fashion, they'll teach them how to sew. They have poetry, like, all this great stuff. And they have kids there. And we teamed up with them, and we were able to, like, give books for free to the kids. And I had my audience, and I had my family. And then um, in East L.A., there was a new bookstore that just had opened, and it's called Other Books. Books. Um, and I had a high, East L.A. high school uh, come in, and they had kids coming in as well, and that was perfect. So, you know, like I'm just 
trying for me my first book yes four months before that I'm working trying to like get the word out um, doing a lot of interviews um, there's a lot of you know yeah just a lot of interviews um, just trying to get the word out and then try not to freak out I mean the thing that I discovered about myself through this process of having the book come out is how much you know I, I think I've said this before but how much I really enjoy talking to young people like I I was really blessed to go back. I was invited to go to um, to the Bronx, to the library there, um, right where my neighborhood, you know, where I grew up. I haven't been back to that neighborhood in years. My parents live nearby, but not in that neighborhood where the, my pro- the projects were, um, where I grew up. Um, the library that I, you know, I used to walk to, that my mom used to take us to, no longer exists. So they bought, they built this really fancy, beautiful library I was floored and libraries and going to libraries they saved my life when I was young so um, those books were just something that someone with money could do I really believed in a way someone super educated with money who had many degrees can publish a book and not this girl from the South Bronx who grew up in the housing projects Lehman College kind of invited me over to speak to like I don't know, it must have been over 250 kids, maybe even more. It was like sets of kids that were like bust in to hear me speak. And I did a presentation of like my journey um, publishing this book, uh, you know, have images of me when I was young. Um, it's, you know, my mom was in the audience, audience and I just, I can't tell you how amazing that feeling was of like walking. You know, we took the bus from where my parents live walking over and seeing the neighborhood completely changed and different and trying to remember the places that I used to walk when I was young and the places I used to play and um, and then talking to these young kids and you know they came up to me afterwards and a group of young girls all came up to me and so one of them took my phone and did a selfie you know, it was just like, there was just so much love. I found a boy whose name was Moises, and I took a picture of him, and he had a bow tie. <laughs> it's just like, please, like, everyone is killing me. I felt so lucky. Like, to me, like, I, you know, I've spoken to kids in a border town in Texas. You know, I've, speaking to, I've spoken to kids on Friday who were in Santa Ana, these, these young high school girls that came out to see me speak. And, you know, they're just like, no one comes to see us. No one comes out here, you know, and and, you know, I'm like nothing. <laughs> I'm just like a young adult author who just started. But I was just like, oh, it makes me like it gives me energy to like, all right, I could do this. I could write the next novel. I could be uh, I could get those stories out there that I think they might be interested in learning, you know, in reading that they won't be bored. You know, like these are stories that I wish I had when I was growing up. Like I would have wrote, you know, read that girl gang book, but I read The Outsiders and The Outsiders to me was key. You know, when I was growing up, like I read it hundreds of times, like I see him was amazing. So I was like, I want I want the outsiders, but for girls, you know, Puerto Rican girls, you know, Latina girls, you know, people of color. So this weirdness is that someone I was talking to online about it was just like, oh, you know, you have your debut, the book comes out, and then you feel sad afterwards. It's like the sadness of the debut, right? And I, I will, I will say this: that after my, um, after I had my uh, Bronx debut, like my whole family is there. I have childhood friends come to come out, and I had a Valencia cake. It was amazing. It was great. 
And as soon as we were about to leave, I just bawled. I was just crying. I was just, it was so, it was so emotional because it was like, it was totally a dream come true. I'm like getting emotional about it now. It was a, a dream come true and it was in the Bronx. Like, I was just like, my family was there and they witnessed it. So I wasn't like, it's not this thing where I was just like typing away by myself for hours. It became like tangible. Like these girls, I have pictures of girls reading my book. That to me was like tangible. Like it's, it, it became real. You know, and it never, I, I'm like, I, it doesn't, like, I'm not, that will never go away. Like, whenever kids come up to me and say something or email me or, you know, I've had people from Puerto Rico email me and, you know, just tell me how much they love or I could see myself, I could see how my father is in this book or, you know, all these things. Like, it, I, I'm always floored by it because it means that my book did exactly what I was hoping it would do. Like, it connected with someone who's young. Um, who maybe felt like they didn't see themselves on the shelf, you know, maybe they saw themselves on that cover alone, you know. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, blues, yeah, you get caught up into like, what? why am I not over there? Like, why am I not invited to this or what have you? I, I always go back to like, I don't have time. <laughs> there's no time. There's like only right now, there's the work and the next book and me trying to connect with another kid. You know, that's all I have. Um, that's my job. My job is to connect to the next kid and get them to read, you know, my book or whoever. Um, this is the first chapter of um, The Education of Margot Sanchez. A cacherista with flaming orange-red hair invades my space the minute I step inside the supermarket. I search for Papi, but he's walked ahead into his office already. Look who's here. The cacherista announces while eating some sort of pastry, La Princesa has arrived. I wince as she calls me by my childhood nickname and not my real name, Margot. The rest of the cashier girls give my preppy floral outfit the once over. What are you doing here? She ignores the pastel de guayaba crumbs that fall on her too tight shirt that which reads, Mira pero no toques, a warning to the masses to look but not touch her looming chest. Before I can even respond, Oscar, the manager, comes up to me and places a protective hand on my shoulder. She's helping us this summer, Oscar says. Verdad, princesa? Well, more like supervising. I say this with just enough emphasis on the word supervising for the cashirista to shift her weight to her right hip. Oscar laughs at my work declaration aspiration and offers me a pity pat on my shoulder. I take a good look around. It's been a while since I've been here. Sanchez's Sud supermarket used to be bright and cheerful, a welcoming oasis in a sea of concrete buildings. Now the blue paint is peeling, the posters are the same from five years ago, and there's some funky odor that I can't place. I spot a large sign with a banana dressed in a ridiculous mambo costume. The banana smiles back at me as if she's in on the joke, and she is, everyone is. My year at Somerset Pret is being scrubbed away with every second I spend here, and there's nothing I can do about it. Buenos dias, Senor Sanchez. A stock boy wearing a Yankees baseball hat tilted to the side and droopy extra-large pants that fall off his hips greets Papi. Finally, he makes an appearance. I adjust my skirt and pull down my matching short sleeve top. The blouse barely covers my big butt. I might be overdressed, but my stylish clothes are my only armor against perverted stock boys like this one who now leers at me. 
Even with the hat, I can still make out his Dragon Ball Z spiked hair gelled so hard that it looks like a shellacked crown. I stare him down until he looks away. It's seven in the morning on a Monday. This is how I'm spending my first day of vacation. I blame my parents for this summer imprisonment. I was this close to joining Serena and Camille on their vacation to the Hamptons, two months of hanging with the only squad that mattered by the beach. It took some serious scheming on my part to secure an invite from the girls, right down to me doing things I never thought I would. There was that time they dared me to make out with some nerd, Charles from English class. Serena and Camille were joking, but I did it. When I pulled my lips away, Charles' large eyes registered confusion, and then he turned bright red. What was truly messed up was that Charles didn't miss a beat. He covered up the embarrassment by laughing along with Serena and Camille. There wasn't much separating me from him. We were both outsiders in that school. Both didn't know how to dress, both surviving. Still, I ignored that awful pit of guilt growing in my stomach because taking that dare was worth it. There were other things I did denied my natural curls by straightening out my hair, stole some expensive lipstick, anything to make Serene and Camille notice me. If I was going to be the great brown hope for my family by attending this super expensive high school, I knew I needed to make friends with the right girls. Papi said to me on my first day of school, don't waste your time with idiots, always look for the kids who, st who stand out. Camille and Serena stood out because they were popular, like straight out of a CW TV show episode popular. Fashion girls. I thought I was stylish, but I had no concept of what that meant, which with my dated vintage dresses and two loud tacky colors. I tried to explain this to my parents, but they called up my summer plans to teach me a lesson. Now I'm stuck in their supermarket in the South Bronx, far away from the sun and the gorgeous Nick Green. Grounded, stuck, personified. The Right Process is produced by me, Charlie Jensen, at the UCLA Extension Studio. Audio support and editing were provided by Jamie Moss, Eileen Keegan, and Hannah Sutherland. For more information on the Writers Program, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.